Welcome to Making Up a History, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to study for his comprehensive exams. Like many of you, I have started my morning with a good dose of drugs. My drug of choice is coffee, probably like many of you guys, and I have not gone a day without coffee since, I think, sophomore year of college, uh, you know, at least a decade ago. Now, it's really funny for me to be reading about world history and to think that people, you know, 600 years ago didn't have coffee because I can't imagine what life was like without coffee. And it makes me wonder in a way that is completely, you know, not what academic historians do, but is there a way that life without coffee is fundamentally different than life with coffee? Well, today we're going to be playing a little bit with that idea, uh, and we're going to be constructing a periodization of European history from the past, like, you know, 500 years or so, based on that century's drug of choice. So we're going to be dealing with three different big periods of European history, the Renaissance and Reformation, the Enlightenment, and the Industrial Revolution. And in each of those eras, I will argue, there was a drug of choice. And we can tell a little bit about the character of those eras by looking at that drug of choice. So let's start with Renaissance and Reformation. Um, this is around, you know, 15th century to 16th century. This is the time period where you have people like Machiavelli and Christopher Columbus and Martin Luther. And the big drug of choice of this time period, I will argue, is something we don't usually think of as a drug. It is spices. The Renaissance and Reformation time period was obsessed with spices. Elite food was incredibly heavily spiced. I've heard it described as almost like Indian food in the amount of spices that it used. Nutmeg, cloves, black pepper, uh, allspice. All these things were incredibly in demand and they were incredibly expensive. They would be given as precious gifts the same way as you or I might give a jewel, which is, you know, rarely, but the elites would give it to one another. And they were brought to Europe through these gigantic networks of traders from countries that remain to the average European completely swathed in mystery. These fancy spices were only grown on one or two very distant islands in, in, in what is now Indonesia, what we call the Spice Islands. But they were essential to the everyday life of the elites. This is why in the 16th century, when the cost of black pepper skyrocketed by over 30 times, that people started to push for there to be explorations to try to find new routes to find spices. We know the conclusion of this because it's what led to the European discovery of America by Christopher Columbus. Christopher Columbus, we all know from, you know, elementary school history class, was going off on his three ships to find a new route to China so that they could get cheaper spices. So it was this demand for spices that pushed the discovery of the New World. And as many people think that it's the discovery of the New World that kind of kick-started the modern era, we can identify this demand for tasty, tasty food as one of the principal desires of modernity. Now let's move from the desire to spice to my particular vice, uh, coffee. And I will argue to you guys today that coffee was the drug of choice of the Enlightenment, along with tobacco and chocolate. 
Think of all the people that you know who rely on coffee to go to work every day and to think properly, right? And think of the sort of associations that we have with the experience of coffee. When you drink too much, of course, it makes you jittery, but when you drink just enough, it helps you wake up, it makes you sober, it helps you think, and it makes you more quick. And the people in the Enlightenment who first started to drink coffee identified these characteristics as well. For them, the big thing that really emphasized what coffee was, was that it was sober. Now, before coffee, most of the drinks that people would drink, not just for you know, recreation or pleasure, but just to get refreshed, were alcoholic. Generally, water wasn't something that you wanted to drink because they didn't have modern sanitation. And you actually get things like health manuals telling you that if you drink cold water, it will help kill you. What you should drink instead is wine or beer. Now, this isn't just early modern medicine being like early modern medicine is really bad. But it was true because water has a lot of waterborne illnesses, you have to purify it in some way before it becomes drinkable. And the early modern version of this was to make beer or wine out of it. But coffee gave an alternative way of purifying water. You boiled it to make coffee. And it also helped that it was real caffeinated and made people think better. So when coffee lands in London, you get all of these excited academics and merchants writing to one another about how awesome it is. Because with coffee, instead of, you know, drinking one or two cups of beer while you have a deal and then getting a little tipsy, you could talk with your friends all night without getting drunk. And this, I think, might explain some of the big intellectual shifts of the 18th century. Those very associations that we have of coffee, of being sober, of being industrious, of helping us work, are also the associations that we have with the new kinds of ways of being of the 18th century. Protestantism, capitalism, these are things that make you think about the future, work hard in the moment, and also repress momentary desires in favor of future gain. And I think that if we want one drug to represent the 18th century, it will be coffee. Now, of course, there were a couple other drugs too that were really big in the 18th century. Tobacco was hugely popular. Uh, most people in Britain smoked it out of pipes, uh, but on the continent, the rich would use snuff boxes and they had these super elaborate rituals of the exact right way in which you would pinch the snuff and how you would hold the snuff case, which were these, you know, bejeweled, elaborate, incredibly rich things that, uh, you know, people like kings and potentates would collect. And in Catholic countries, instead of drinking a cup of coffee, people would often drink a cup of hot chocolate, uh, which had similar sorts of connotations. But instead of, you know, drinking it sitting up at a desk like you would coffee, you would drink it kind of uh, resigned on a couch, daydreaming. Imagine a boudoir with some uh, Turkish rug. That's like the ideal chocolate sipping position. Now, of course, where did coffee tea, tobacco, and chocolate come from? Well, you couldn't grow them in Europe, although a lot of botanists tried their hardest. Uh, Carl Linnaeus, the guy who gives us uh, modern biological taxonomy, spent a really, really long time trying to grow tea in Lapland. No joke. Uh, 
But because you couldn't get these tropical beverages in Europe, you had to get them on the global market. And we will remember our old friend, the giant pool of money. This is what the giant pool of money invested in a lot. It would invest in coffee plantations, in tobacco plantations, and it would make money from the global trade. A lot of the money that the giant pool of money represented came from trading agricultural products of the global south that were in demand by Europeans because of their drug quantities, okay? So our third period is the Industrial Revolution. And when we think of the Industrial Revolution, remember, of course, our soot-cheeked factory worker. And what was their drug of choice? Well, it was gin. That was the opium of the masses in the 18th and 19th century distilled spirits. The thing about distilled spirits is that they're kind of like factories. Factories increase the pace of work. They increase the intensity of work and they increase the amount of stuff that you get. Gin and other spirits also increase the intensity and acceleration of drunkenness. It takes a while to get drunk on beer. Not a too, you know, not, not very long, but it certainly takes a little bit of work. But with gin, you can get drunk in minutes. And then there's another thing that links gin and factories. How are factories powered? Well, by coal, by fossil fuels. And how is gin made? Well, to make gin, you need to distill it. And this requires an energy source. And the reason why gin and other spirits become a lot more popular amongst the working classes in the 18th and 19th centuries is that the price of energy is going down because the coal trade is increasing. Gin, like so much else, is a product of fossil fuels. And because of the increased amount of gin drinking, there were tons of moral panics in the 19th century about how liquor was destroying the working classes. This is the era of temperance legislation. This is the time when social reformers looked at their societies and thought that the number one problem that they were dealing with was drunkenness. And before we call them fuddy-duddies, before we look down our noses at them condescendingly, we have to remember that it was probably correct. There was probably major social problems caused by overdrinking and alcoholism that we are, do not experience as much because we live in the post-temperance society where we understand that you can't get drunk every night or that it's, you know, not good to. And of course, there's another opium of the people, and that's opium itself. The 18th and 19th centuries are also the time when the giant pool of money encouraged massive drug addiction in China through promoting of the opium trade. Now, in China, opium slowly diffused through the people from about the 16th century. Uh, at first, it was considered an elite aphrodisiac, something that people would smoke if you were you know, one of the emperor's friends who was sitting around at a fancy imperial party or something. But slowly through the 17th and 18th centuries, it diffused down from the very top of the top to imperial eunuchs, to middle-class people in cities, and then to the working class in cities. And this was encouraged by the East India Company, the uh, British government's trading wing in India. We talked about this briefly before, but there's a big problem 
in world trade at the moment. And that is that Britain really wants the stuff that China has, tea, lacquerware, fine porcelain goods. But China doesn't really want much of what Europe has. China wants watches, small baubles, maps, silver, coralware, and that's about it. And so there's a constant trade deficit between Europe and China. Well, the East India Company figures out a way to get over this trading deficit, and that's by selling the Chinese opium. This leads to what are called the Opium Wars, these two military endeavors that literally break open forcibly China to free trade. And this vastly increases the opium trade. In 1820, before free trade, there were about 4,000 chests of opium imported into China every year. 20 years later, after the Opium Wars have smashed open the country, it was 40,000, a 10 times increase in the import of opium. And this is just official imports. It doesn't count local opium production or smuggling. And so because of the intentional foisting of opium addiction onto China, Chinese working class people became opium addicts. There were a culture of getting smashed on opium every night in opium dens. And today, as we look at these th three periods of drugs, we have to remember that they're still around. We still live in these cultures of drug consumption that happened slowly and slowly and slowly through the centuries. When your friends talk about going out to some fancy, fancy meal and they Instagram photos of it, well, they are living through the Renaissance and Reformation love of spices and good food. When your other friends talk about how they can't live with Without their Starbucks, well, they are being a little bit like the Enlightenment reformers who also couldn't live and think without their coffee. And in the same way, their benign drug addiction is based on cycles of international trade that we have very little control over. And when these same friends decide to go out on a Friday night and Saturday night bender and get smashed on liquor, well, they are also living through part of the 19th century industrial revolution love of distilled spirits that help ease the pains of capitalist and industrial production. And when we walk by uh, the people who in our inner cities are destroyed by opiate addiction, we have to remember that this too was a product of the same kinds of forces. Like today when there's controversy about pharmaceutical companies getting rich off of fentanyl, which is incredibly addicted and is leading to a lot of addiction, suffering, and pain. Well, we also have to remember that this cycle is nothing new. The East India Company also pushed opiate addiction on an entire people. And they pushed it so that the British people could keep up their tea addiction. Anyway, uh, the deeper question, the question that's a lot harder to get at that I think that we don't exactly have the methodology to explore is how do these different drug regimes change the way that people actually felt? How did it change the way that people thought? Just from our own experience, we know that when we go to a culture that drinks a lot, say, you know, Germany or a frat house, there's a different way of living in the world than when we live in a culture that 
is coffee-based or uh, uh, relies like a lot of the Silicon Valley life on the consumption of smart drugs like medicinal and Adderall. And we also know that there's a completely different way of being when people organize their lives around drugs that are uh, more enjoyable or that leave to some sort of distancing from reality. So what does it mean that in the 18th century, people now had a choice between getting drunk and drinking coffee? What does it mean in the 19th century that some people had a choice between drinking coffee and drinking beer or taking opium or taking cocaine? What does that mean? I'm not sure. This is something that might be a research project for uh, a historian who has gotten past their comprehensive exams. Thanks very much for listening to us today. I have to thank Jonathan Lear, as always, for the wonderful, wonderful, wonderful intro music. And I have to thank Duncan Barton for the pictures that adorn our iTunes icon. If you like the show, please share us on social media. It really helps. Uh, if you're on Reddit, maybe make a Reddit post. I don't know. Also, uh, give a rating and review on iTunes. It's super, super, super helpful. Uh, and check out our website, historian.live, where you'll find a book list for today and for every other previous episode. Thanks very much, and I'll see you tomorrow.